So a new series this evening studying Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. I'm going to imagine, I may be wrong, but I'm going to imagine that there are some people in the room who aren't very familiar with First Thessalonians. Is that a fair assumption? No? Everybody here is all over First Thessalonians? Um, I, I'm going to stick with my assumption that there are at least one or two. Uh, the reason I can imagine that some of you aren't very familiar with First Thessalonians is because I, too, am not overly familiar with this short book of the Bible. I've never preached it before. Until recently, if I'm honest, it's a, a little part of the Bible that hadn't really grabbed me, if I dare say that. I will have read it a number of times because of a habit that I have of trying to, to read through the Bible uh, at least uh, every few years. Um, so I'll, I'll have read this wee book I don't know how many times, but for the most part it's remained sort of under the radar, if, if you know what I mean by that. It, it just hasn't come to the fore for me. It's been somewhat out of the spotlight or hidden or obscured uh, compared to other seemingly more impressive books of the Bible. If you're like me and not overly familiar with this book, you're not alone. My New Testament professor, Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, he calls it the Cinderella of the New Testament, as in that it's a book that, that comes a little bit late to the ball. It's not the first book that people choose to study. It's not the first book that preachers choose to preach. And yet, I've chosen to preach it here in Hamilton Road, now at the beginning of 2022. Why would I do that? I think I've said to you, I'll always try and explain why I choose to, to bring a, a particular bit of teaching to you at a particular moment in our journey as a church family. There, there'll usually be a, a reason why I do that. Why would I choose to preach 1 Thessalonians here now? Well, I have an answer to that question, but I'm not going to reveal it just yet. It feels like something I could hold on to for a moment. Let me tell you what I'm going to try and do this evening. I'd like to try and answer two questions and then get started into the text. We're actually only going to deal with the first three verses tonight. We're not going to get even as far as verse 10, uh, which Leslie read for us. Those two questions I'd like to answer are very straightforward. What's going on in Thessalonica? And then the question I've just raised, why are we studying this letter just now? So that first question, what's going on in Thessalonica? Why has Paul written this letter? Those questions can be really quite hard to answer in the, the case of some of Paul's letters. But with this first letter to the Thessalonians, it's relatively straightforward. You see, the Bible tells us the story of Paul's interaction with the Thessalonians in a way that helps us understand uh, Paul's purpose in writing. So what I want to do is take you out of 1 Thessalonians for a moment and take you to the book of Acts. So can you flick with me to Acts 17? Acts 17. Just back a, a few books of the Bible there. Acts 
when you find your way to Acts 17, you'll see that the NIV gives a title to the first nine verses, the first chunk of that chapter. It simply calls them in Thessalonica. Those verses tell of the time when Paul first visited the city. Now, flick back to chapter 16, and you'll see a heading there, Lydia's conversion in Philippi. Flick forward again to chapter 17. Notice at verse 10, a little section in Berea. Keep going, and you'll notice the next few titles in chapter 17, verse 16, in Athens. Chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth. Chapter 19, Paul's in Ephesus. So it's, it's clear, just from looking at these titles in the NIV, that this is a, a section in Acts where Luke is telling us of how Paul, Silas, and Timothy have brought the good news of Jesus for the first time to Europe and how they're traveling now through modern-day Greece. Bible scholars reckon this happened in around about 50 or 51 AD. Here's a slide to help you place uh, the names of those cities and towns. I've asked Peter to keep that up for a moment while, while I, I share for a moment on this journey of Paul's. Paul begins his missionary journey there in uh, the European missionary journey, I should say, in, in northern Greece. So if, if your geography's halfway decent, you'll see that he's moving from Turkey uh, up to the, the very highest point where he goes on the map is to Philippi. That's where Paul begins the, the European mission of the early church. The story of Paul's visit to Philippi is a wonderful one because we read that many people there become followers of Jesus. As soon as Paul comes to Europe with the gospel, people respond and become followers of Jesus. But it's a difficult story too because there's opposition from Gentiles in the city. They see uh, Paul's work there as a threat, uh, particularly to their economy. So a mob attacks Paul and Silas the local officials beat them and imprison them and finally force them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas are released from the, the Philippian jail, they're reunited with Timothy. Timothy, by the way, wasn't imprisoned with them. And that's because he's got a Greek background. In the city of Philippi, he wasn't suspect in, in the way that Paul and Silas were but when Paul and Silas are released from prison, they're reunited with Philip, or, or sorry, with, with Timothy, and the three head off to the city of Thessalonica. Let's pick up the story there, and let's read about it in Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm preaching to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas 
as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So as we come to study this first letter to the Thessalonians, we've got to see that Paul's mission to Thessalonica was a success. Many people, were told, came to believe in Jesus. A bit like Philippi, it was a success, but again, it wasn't a walk in the park. Let's read on, verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason's welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. So once again, Paul is facing strong opposition. This time, not at the hand of Greeks who are fearful of their economy, but of jealous Jews. For some Jews in the synagogue, Paul's message about Jesus was manna from heaven. Their Messiah, whom they'd been waiting on for centuries, had finally come, and they recognized him in the message of the gospel preached by Paul. For other Jews, this message about Jesus was an abomination. It undermined their whole faith, their whole way of life. This message about a crucified Galilean, whom Paul was inviting now to worship as a son of God, as far as these conservative Jews in Thessalonica were concerned, Paul had to be silenced. Luke goes on to tell us in the following verses that the believers in Thessalonica had to send Paul and Silas away under cover of night for their own safety. They went to the nearby city of Berea where the people listened to them respectfully. But notice again, verse 15, that the opponents from Thessalonica follow them to Berea and stir up crowds against them again. So for his safety, Paul has to be sent away again, this time to the city of Athens, further south in Greece. Folks, we now have a bit of a picture of the context of Paul's letter to Athens. We've got to see that Paul's visit uh, to Thessalonica, sorry, was a success in terms of seeing people converted, but that it was also very difficult in that Paul and his companions suffered repeated persecution, both in Thessalonica and then even after they'd left the city. The Thessalonian Jews made life difficult for Paul. As we read and study this short letter, we're going to see signs of both of those things. We're going to see the success. We're going to see Paul talk to the new believers who responded in those early days to the gospel. But we're also going to have to, we're going to see Paul talking uh, about persecution that's ongoing 
for the believers there. So far we've learned about Paul's visit to Thessalonica, but we haven't yet seen why he's decided to write to the believers in that city. Paul wrote this letter because he was concerned that the new believers in Thessalonica might be stopped from following Jesus by the, the persecution that he, he, he knew they would be facing. He'd experienced serious opposition in the city. He had experienced it even after he had left the city at the hands of Thessalonian Jews. So Paul, therefore, assumes that the believers in Thessalonica will be experiencing persecution too. Paul has a pastor's heart. He's left the city, but he hasn't left these people. He, he's wondering how they're, they're doing. Have they kept the faith? Or is the persecution broken? Are they still following Jesus? And because this question's keeping Paul awake at night, he finds a way to address it. Here's how it worked out. Paul had gone to Athens, first of all on his own, without Silas and Timothy. He finally moved on from Athens to Corinth, and when he does, Silas and Timothy join him there. Because Paul still has Thessalonica on his heart, he sends Timothy back. He, he wants Timothy to go and encourage the believers there in the midst of their persecution. So he sends Timothy back. It, it's hard for us to imagine in an age of instant communication, we can know what's going on in any part of the world in an instant. I'm imagining Paul sending Timothy and he knows that it'll be weeks. It'll be weeks before young Timothy comes back with a report telling him what he's heard from his friends. He's wondering, what will Timothy tell me? What will he tell me of my sons and daughters in the faith, my spiritual children in Thessalonica? Whenever Timothy did return. He came back to Paul with great news. He said, Paul, they're still following Jesus. And it's at that point, it's when Paul's heard this report from Timothy that the Thessalonians are going on strong with Jesus. It's at that point that he lifts his pen and that he writes this letter. He, he takes this opportunity to express his joy for what he's heard from Timothy, and also to provide some teaching in, in some areas where he sees that it's needed. Without stealing my own thunder and others who are going to preach along with me in this series, let me give you the briefest outline, the briefest idea of what we can expect in this letter. Like all of Paul's letters, he, he begins with an opening section where he, he just addresses his letter really he names who the senders are who the recipients are and then he offers a greeting that's really our first three verses then he often in his letters has a thanksgiving and a prayer we're going to see that in in this letter too then the main body of the letter comes next and then usually there's a closing section where there are greetings exchanged between uh, Paul and his, his companions who are writing along with him 
and, and the recipients. The main body of Thessalonians is quite easy to split into two sections. So the first three chapters are a first section and then a second section in the last two chapters. In the first three chapters, Paul talks at length about the relationship that he has with these Thessalonians. He recalls the time that he had with them and he says how grateful he is that they've remained faithful to Jesus. We could almost summarize the whole of the first half of Thessalonians in two words. I'm thankful. And then he makes a transition in chapters four to five to provide some practical instruction on some issues that, that he's heard of. Maybe he was aware of them from his first visit to Thessalonica. Maybe he's heard from them, uh, heard about them from Timothy. But issues such as uh, sexual immorality, he wants them to avoid that. He wants them to learn to love one another and to work hard to earn their own living. He, he takes a moment to explain that anybody who dies in Christ before Jesus returned, that they're not lost. They'll be raised from the dead at the second coming of Jesus. But Paul reminds them that the second coming of Jesus will be sudden and unexpected. So he encourages them to live in a way that they, they won't be ashamed to, to greet Jesus when he comes. Finally, he advises them how to live as a community of Jesus' followers. I, I think we can summarize the, the teaching in the second half of this short letter in a, in a short phrase, keep up the good work. So there it is, a, an overview of the letter. We can summarize its message to the Thessalonians. I'm thankful to God for your continued faith, keep up the good work. So there it is. That's the answer to our first question. What's going on in Thessalonica and why Paul has written this letter? The answer to our first question almost takes away any need to answer the second question. Our second question, why would I choose to preach a book like this, this book of the Bible at this time in this place? I'm choosing to preach 1 Thessalonians for you now because Paul's message to Thessalonians, the Thessalonians feels like the message I want to share with you. This is personal. I'm your pastor. I want you to know that I'm thankful to God for you and the faith that I see in you. And I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. I'm not going to elaborate on every aspect of what I want to say about that tonight. Tonight we're setting the scene and getting the ball rolling. We'll have opportunities throughout the series to, to elaborate on just that. Now that we've answered those two questions, let's make a start on the text. We're in 1 Thessalonians, just those opening three verses for tonight. The first verses speak for themselves. I'm not going to go 
much further than what we've already said. This letter is from the Apostle Paul and his missionary companions, Silas and Timothy. It's addressed to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the three missionaries, what they do is they, they take a, a pretty bland way of starting a letter where you would just say something like greetings or best wishes, and they immediately turn it into gospel language. They, they want to wish something more than just a, a generic greeting. They, they want to wish people God's deep grace. They want to wish, they want to wish shalom, the peace of God that we were thinking about last term when we thought about in Genesis, God's intentions for all of us are to, to live lives of complete well-being. And that's, that's what Paul and Silas and Timothy are wishing on the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. If you know Paul's letters, you'll know that he almost always begins with a prayer. Look at verse 2. Sometimes he, he prays for people and sometimes he tells them that he's praying for them. And it's a little bit more like that here. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Look how comprehensive that is. We always thank God for all of you and we continually pray. The language speaks for itself. Paul is saturated in prayerfulness. One of the books that's most influenced me um, over the years is David Watson's uh, book, Discipleship. When he talks about this, this prayerfulness of Paul's, he says, prayer has always been a primary mark of the saints of God in every generation of the church. He takes Paul as a, a biblical starting point, but then he moves through the history of the church. He tells us about George Whitfield, who retired punctually at 10 p.m. every night and rose equally promptly at 4 a.m. to pray. He tells us of John Wesley, who spent two hours daily in prayer and commonly, commonly said that God does nothing but in answer to prayer. Martin Luther commented, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. The leaders of the Clapham sect, people like William Wilberforce, those folks who saw such enormous social reforms in England, they habitually gave themselves to three hours of prayer each day. They organized Christians uh, throughout the country to unite in special periods of prayer when there was a, a, a crucial debate coming up in the parliament. They knew and they persistently proved the power of prayer. William Temple, whenever his critics would say to him that prayer answered prayers no more than a coincidence, he'd say, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't pray, they don't. So fo folks, Paul is constantly in prayer. And he's in prayer for these Thessalonians. He's, he's telling them that he's thanking God for them. I, I thought I'd take a moment this evening 
to tell you that I'm thanking God for you. And since Paul's talking about prayerfulness, I want to tell you this evening that I'm thankful for your prayerfulness. Prayerfulness is a funny thing. I think we, we always feel we could pray more and therefore we almost forget or make little of the prayer that people offer. I want to say that during these first 12 months as your minister, I've been humbled by the passion for prayer that I've seen in this place. I've seen it in all sorts of places. Before I ever came, uh, during a period when you were interviewing for a new minister and uh, when I got to work with a hearing committee and while the congregation here were voting, I was very conscious of, of seasons of prayer that the elders were having as they moved through this crucial period in the life of the church. I got a sense that nobody in the leadership here wanted to invite a new minister without praying and praying much about that. I'm so grateful to be invited here by a praying leadership. Since then, I've been delighted to see the elders continuing to lead us uh, as a praying congregation. Uh, every Wednesday evening, fortnightly, when we meet for a prayer gathering or when we meet on Friday mornings, we have elders right at the heart of that, leading us as a praying congregation. By the way, if you're not in the habit of coming to one of those prayer gatherings, why not consider making that a New Year's resolution? As Leslie says, we're still in single figures. It's not too late to, to be thinking about how we're going to enter into the year ahead. If you're not familiar with those gatherings, uh, let me tell you a bit about them. On Wednesdays, we tend to pray for the work that happens here in the church and also for our missions family out in the wider world. And more recently, we've started to pray for our own members uh, in the ways God's using them on their front lines. The gatherings on a Friday morning have, have quite a particular focus. They were established to allow us to, to pray for our church services, that we'd know God's presence with him, with us, that we'd know him in his word, and I must tell you that God hears and answers these prayers. I've lost count already in the, the last 12 months of how many times I've, I've come to, to be here on a Sunday to lead or to preach. And I've, I've sensed God's enabling and God's power in ways that I can't account for. When I've felt daunted, I've felt enabled. When I've felt weak, I felt energized, and I believe that that is down largely to the prayers that you offer here as you pray for our church life together. I'm grateful to our elders. I'm grateful to those who pray in our gatherings. I'm grateful, too, for the many people who commit to praying in a, a personal capacity. I can only talk about what I know. I can only say what I see. Sometimes people get in touch to, to let me know that they're praying for me. 
That's a great encouragement. Just this week, a gentleman got in touch, a member of the congregation who I know prays for me. Uh, this person would get in touch with me occasionally. They'd tell me that they're praying for me. And, and the lovely thing that they've started to do is that they maybe write a short prayer in the actual email. They'll tell me what it is they're praying. They thank God for me. They pray for an anointing on my ministry and a blessing on my family. What a kindness. Folks, you're praying people. And I'm so thankful to God for you. I'm thankful for the faith that I see in you. I'm thankful to God for your prayerfulness. As I said, I could, I have a whole lot of things I want to say in this series, but tonight I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to say thank you to God for the prayerfulness that I see in you. In Paul's case, let's, let's come back to the text for a few moments. What's Paul thankful for in the Thessalonians? Well, the first thing I want to say is that he's thankful for them, for them as people themselves. The focus of his thanksgiving, verse 2, we thank God for all of you. Folks, I think we lose this sometime in the church. Whenever we express gratitude to God, you know, it, it might be, I don't know, what people feel grateful to God for. Sometimes it's for the, the size of a congregation or the, the grandeur of the building that they get to meet in. Sometimes it's for experiences we have in our church family. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's He's got a small number of people in Thessalonica in mind, and he says to the Lord, he tells them, I, I'm thankful to God for you, for the people. I don't want you to miss that. Pastor Paul, grateful to God for the people themselves. And, and I, I echo that. Paul does elaborate a little in verse 3. He gives us some idea of what he's thankful for in the lives of those in Thessalonica. He says he's grateful for your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's thankful for their work, labor, and endurance. We, we can't be too sure exactly what behaviors in Thessalonica make him grateful but it's not too hard to imagine. Timothy, returning from his visit to the city and reporting back to Paul, they're doing great, Paul. They're working away. They're laboring hard. The, the persecution hasn't deterred them. They have endured. For Paul, the, the work, the labor, and the endurance that's evident in the lives of the Thessalonians they all have their roots in deep spiritual realities, namely in faith, hope, and love. By the way, you've maybe heard of that trilogy before of faith, hope, and of love. This is probably the first time they've ever been written. Faith, hope, and love come to us from Paul 
through his letters. And 1 Thessalonians is probably his first letter. All the good that Paul's seen and or that Timothy's seen, sorry, and reported back to Paul, it's all flowing out of their relationship with Jesus Christ. That might not be immediately evident the way Paul's written. It, it might not be immediately evident in the text. We might read the final phrase there in verse 3, in our love, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we might think that it refers only to the hope, only to the third of those things. That's not a good way to interpret that. It's better to think of that final phrase as going with all three. So it's not only their hope that is in our Lord Jesus Christ, but their work is a product of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their labor is prompted by their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus, says Paul. Everything that Paul is thankful for in these young Christians in Thessalonica flows from their relationship with Jesus. Their faith, hope, and love are evidence that Jesus' spirit is on them and is transforming them. Let me close by telling you about a visit I made to our Sunday club, our Sunday school, on the, the last Sunday before Christmas. I forgot to go. Amy had to come into the service and pull me out during a hymn. Um, I'd agreed to go and, and forgot. The Sunday club, occasion, maybe some of you have done this, they occasionally invite an adult to come and join them for a thing that they called chat show. So as the name suggests, they set it up as a, an interview, a, a chat show format, where a Sunday school teacher will interview this, this victim, I suppose, this adult who's been called out of the congregation who has to come and join them. So it was, it was my turn. Uh, Leslie, I think, was my chat show host and interviewed me that day. So we start with a few lighthearted questions, um, then a few questions about life in general, and then some questions about how the, the adult is following Jesus. I really enjoyed it. It's great to be out there with the kids and talking about, about real life. At the end, they do this very unsettling thing where they throw the floor open to the kids. So they're what, what age are they? They're like seven to 11. Okay, kids, shout out your question for our guest. I, I think they were very respectful. It went very easy on me that day. But here's a question one of them asked. What do you love most about your job? I do, I'm going to tell you this, I do such a variety of things. My job, I, I, like I, I just don't ever know what a day is going to bring. Some of the stuff I do, you, you, could, you see it and you, you would know. Some of the stuff I do, you would never guess. So when a question like that comes, what do you most love about your job? I, I thought it would be hard to answer. A split second. And I simply said, that's easy. I love to see God working in people's lives to make them more like Jesus. Without thinking very much about it at all, I came up with the same answer that 
I think I would give if I thought about it all my life. That's what I love most about my job. Without thinking about it very much at all, I think I've said something quite similar to what Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica as he writes them this letter. Folks, what I love most of all is to see God at work in your lives, making you more like Jesus. So at this early stage in my ministry here, I want to say I'm thankful to God for you. I'm thankful for the faith that I see in you. And I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. Let's pray.